Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. By law, gay men and lesbian women were banned from serving in the British military until the year 2000. Up until that point, around 200 to 250 service personnel were thrown out of the military each year because of their sexuality. Arrest, internal investigation, dishonourable discharge, forced outing and even prison were all part of the punishments inflicted by the British military. In some instances, medals were physically ripped from a service person's uniform after conviction at court-martial. This was until January 12, 2000, 22 years ago, when the British military fundamentally changed the way it treated homosexuality within its ranks. This is the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and to tell us all about this history, we have Ed Hall. Ed is former Royal Navy, and he was sacked because of his sexuality. He subsequently went on to establish and lead the campaign to lift the military ban. If you've not heard much about this history before, then all I can say is stay tuned. This is a revelatory story. Hi Ed, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. How are you doing? I'm good, James. Thank you. Really nice to see you again. It's been too long, thanks to COVID, of course. It has been too long. I think the last time that I saw you... We were probably heading off to a brunch-lunch situation in Reykjavik before you, Paul, and the dogs jetted off. Where are you based now? Well, we've been based in the UK for the last three years, and we are just at the moment packing. So forgive some of the chaos around me here, but we're on our way to Brussels, where Paul, that's my partner, is taking on a new role at NATO. There might be some things going on at NATO at the moment. I think Mr. Putin might be doing some stuff. Well, you know, as a diplomatic wife, I get into terrible trouble if I say anything I shouldn't say. So I shall remain wholly <laughs> silent on the subject. But yeah, I suspect in a few years' time, you'll be doing another one of these about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. And we will get Paul on to tell us all about it. But we are here today to talk about an important part of your own history, but also an important part of British military history as well. And this is the lifting of the so-called gay ban in the British military over 22 years ago. So, well, let's start from the start. Tell us a little about your own service. When did you join the military? Yeah, so I, well, I was at school in the 1980s. I'm obviously much older than I look. Yes, yeah, so I, in the end, joined the, the Royal Navy straight from school. 
So I had a brief gap where I worked in the Christmas Grotto at Hamley's toy store in London, but I went straight from there to Dartmouth to the Britannia Royal Naval College, where I trained as a seaman officer to, you know, as a ordinary young midshipman training to be part of the Navy. Of course, it was still Cold War then, was still a a substantial size Navy, substantial size armed forces, and there was a, a sense of tension in the air which I think only recently people are beginning to understand again, but that tension that was in the air was there all the time. So joining the armed forces was more than just a career choice. You know, it it said something about your view of the world. It said something about how you felt about what you wanted to do with your life. And so I joined the Navy and had an interesting time, enjoyed my training, made some great friends. But shortly afterwards, I found myself in London with some former school friends. And through meeting people in London, I realised something which I suppose you could argue I should have realised before, but I, I hadn't really, which was that I was gay. And the reason I think that I sort of talked about the Cold War a bit was to give you a sense of what that meant then, because you were discovering something about yourself that meant that you were in breach of the law. It wasn't just that you had a very difficult personal issue to deal with and something to deal with with family and friends and and everything else, but you also had this terrifying situation that you found yourself in, which was that one of the jobs of the military police, of the naval police, of the various elements of the armed forces security apparatus was to identify people who were lesbian and gay and ensure that they were sacked. Now, at that point in the 1980s, it wasn't just that you would lose your job. Being gay was an offence. So it it wasn't simply as it became shortly before the ban in the mid-90s, it became grounds for a simple administrative discharge, although people still then lost their pensions and had catastrophes in in their private lives as a consequence. But earlier on in the 80s, simply being gay was itself a criminal offence. And that put people in a very difficult position because you were forced to live some form of double life or live in a way which caused you know enormous pain. So I found that extremely difficult. And it was also the time of Section 28, which was a piece of legislation that was affecting how homosexuality was dealt with in education in the 1980s, very controversial piece of legislation. And I found myself at one point simultaneously trying to navigate my future career as a naval officer and wanted to campaign on Section 28, which put me in an impossible position. So I outed myself. So I saw my commanding officer. I told him he was gay. I remember this long pause. There used to be a sort of form about so big, you know, smaller than A4, that was a memorandum, a Ministry of Defence memorandum. Everyone's desk had them on. And I just remember him sort of looking at me and not saying anything. And he sort of wrote the word gay in capital letters down on this form and sort of looked at it and then underlined it again and then said, you know, I think you'll need to tell me a bit more. And what started then was the process of the end of my career. I went to HMS Nelson where I was investigated in an interrogation room. Because I was a young officer, there was interest in what was going to happen I hadn't been caught committing an offence, so they weren't entirely sure what they were going to do. I remember them coming in and asking to the Special Investigating Branch, the SIB at, at, at Nelson, coming in and asking if they could take the sheets as they were handwriting out my statement, take those off as they each one was finished and have them typed up so they could be immediately go off to the more senior people to read. And, you know, feeling completely alone, I would go to the office. I mean, I had two days of that and I would go into the office, into an interrogation room and then go back to the wardroom across the road in in Nelson and sit there with people wondering why, you know, 
while I was there, I wouldn't have a chat. And I'm in this sort of numb, not sure what's happening to my life state where I'm 21 years old and being interrogated for being gay by naval police. And, you know, my family didn't know where on earth do you go with that? And, you know, later came to talk to lots of other people who'd been through the same position and the thoughts of, you know, of suicide, of self-harm, of trying to end it all are things that, you know, are common, I think, to most people who found themselves in that quite horrendous situation for doing something or being something which was entirely legal in civilian life. Did you find at the time that people were actively trying to to catch you out or was there more of a feeling of a, a don't ask don't tell sort of situation what was your treatment like your day-to-day life like when you were serving during that two years i mean i remember the first time i visited a gay bar which is one in st martin's lane in, in central london that's gone now but i remember having a copy of the evening standard the evening newspaper in london and as I went in and out of the bar, covering my face with the newspaper because I was terrified that someone would be watching or following me or photographing me. And, you know, as you know, I later went on to found the campaign to have the law changed. And then I got to hear lots of other people's stories. And some of the things that I discovered were that I wasn't being paranoid for a start. So when you think that people going in and out of gay bars hiding their faces because people might be photographing them are being paranoid... Well, we discovered subsequently that the, the, the gay bar in Portsmouth, which had DSS office, the Department of Social Security, Government Benefits Office opposite it, that office was being used precisely to photograph the faces of people going in and out of that bar so that people could be identified and exposed. So it wasn't a case, as many people thought, that you were able to just live a quiet life and that no one was really interested. And there was a sense in some of the reporting in the 90s that that was the reality. Well, that wasn't true. And women in particular had a very tough time of it. So there were military police officers based in the Empress State Building in London whose job for significant periods of time was trying to track down gay women. And as they found one, they would then find her letters, find their diaries and track down groups of women who knew each other around the world. And there are examples of that extending across Germany to bases in Hong Kong. They would follow those trails around the world. We uncovered a, a situation later on that involved some Nimrod pilots and navigators who were followed for an extended period of time of weeks uh, as they were travelling around London. Now, the, the sort of expenditure and time and energy that was going into trying to track down who was gay and fire them was extraordinary. It wasn't a case of, you know, if you just kept your head below the parapet, then nothing would happen. And the consequence of that is that quite a lot of people who weren't caught, when they got to the point, you know, 22 years, whatever it was, when they got to the point in their career that they could bail, they bailed. Because had they stayed, they were risking everything. So you get quite a lot of people now, my age and older, who had careers that ended prematurely. They don't appear in the statistics as a someone who was sacked, but the moment they could get out and not risk their pension, they were gone. And do we know how many people were forced to leave the British Armed Forces as a result of this ban? Well, we've never had formal numbers. When I wrote the book in the mid-90s, I did meet the MOD, who were actually very helpful when I was preparing the book. And when I was suggesting that over a period of time, we were probably talking about 100 or more people a year, they never came back and, and, and disputed that and, and said I was way out. And of course, that would only be the people who were fired. That's not the people who either resigned or waited their time and then never went on to have a more senior career as a consequence of the ban. But we know of pilots, senior people flying and 
fighting helicopters, people in fast jets, people in Nimrods, people who were in senior jobs in nuclear submarines. These are people that have had vast amounts of public money spent on their careers, on their training, on the expertise that they built up, and all of that was tossed on the fire. A ridiculous and terrible waste, not only for those personnel themselves, but for the functioning of the British military. Take us a little bit into your initial training. What were you told of the ban when you joined? And and were there any justifications given for having such a ban in place? No. We can come on to the justifications later, if if you like, because that that was quite interesting. But when you joined, everyone was in principle asked. But because it's quite an odd question to ask, most people were asked it in a strange way. I know several people who, who were asked when they were joining, obviously, there's no need for us to ask if you're gay. I would say, obviously, no, there's no need, sir. There's no need, sir. You know, so there were lots of ways around that. I was asked questions about romantic involvement with men, which I was comfortably, easily and honestly able to say no. But there were lots of versions of that. There wasn't. You didn't sign a form saying that you were straight. And of course, the armed forces recruits people it still recruits young people, but it recruited even younger people in the 1980s. So to expect people joining it, I'd had a sixth form scholarship. Expect people to be at 15, 16, 17, 18, confidently announcing their sexual orientation was probably a bit much to expect. So for a lot of people, it was later on in their careers that they become sufficiently self-aware to realise they had a problem. So take us through some of these these justifications, if you don't mind, Ed, because it'll appear alien to so many of us that this was able to be a ban within the British military, especially at a time when it was legal in the rest of society. How was this able to sustain? How was this justified? Well, it's really nice, rather than talking about this as a political thing, to be talking about it as a piece of history, actually, James, because I, I think it's worth looking through and thinking about how how, how I think we got to where we got to, which is that yeah, because I, I talked to people who served in the in the Second World War when I wrote the book, and they said it wasn't an issue. And I remember in the 90s appearing on a Kilroy program for older viewers. And in that, there was a guy in, I think, his 70s, you know, nicely dressed in tweed and clearly of a very military bearing. And he was one of the set-up people. And, and if you were ever on those programs, you knew that half the audience had been placed there by the researchers. So Robert Kilroy still knew when he was going to run around with his microphone and, and, and talk to them. It was much more stage-managed than it really appeared. So he was there. So we were wondering what he was, because he was clearly a plant for something. Oh, God, is this going to be a real negative for us? And actually, no, he'd been at D-Day and he'd stormed the beaches at D-Day and his platoon commander had been gay. And he described that storming, the storming of a machine gun nest with that guy leading him and said that he was gay and said that without hesitation, he was the bravest man I ever met. And we thought, whoa, okay. This is powerful testimony. But that was in the war. I made a program some years ago about Bletchley Park, you know, and asked people there who who served there about the issue for obvious reasons with Alan Turing. They said, no, no one gave a damn. And no one gave a damn, one fabulous woman who worked in the huts there said. He thought, okay, so how do you get from that at a time of war when it really mattered to where we got to in the 70s, 80s, 90s? And I think what happened was that in the 1950s, in society more generally, there was a something of a moral crusade. You had the Montague trials, for example, and there was a sense that a moral crusade took place in the 50s. And I think that that had quite a profound impact on the armed forces, and that somehow, although the rest of the world had gone through the 60s, the hippie revolutions, the legalisation of homosexuality, flower power, 
the world of everyone else wasn't reflected in the forces. And that older generation of service personnel who had you know, served in Korea or had watched what had gone on in Vietnam and watched the protests of Vietnam and felt very strongly that they were on the side of the forces, not the protesters in, in Washington. I think that as that change in society happened, somehow the forces just got left behind. And so by the time I was losing my own job and then campaigning on the subject, it was very clear that the Ministry of Defence had taken the view that to allow lesbians and gay men to serve would be, and they use the phrase often, injurious to good order and discipline. They even got to the point in the early or mid-1990s when they commissioned what was called the Homosexuality Policy Assessment Team, the HPAT report, which you can still find online. It's one of the most embarrassing pieces of government work I've ever read. So what they were trying to do at that point was to justify the ban. I think it was published in about 96. And, and this document is based on research. So they, they, a group of researchers met members of the armed forces, were clearly there to find out about attitudes to homosexuality, but were doing so as part of the chain of command. So groups of soldiers, sailors, airmen and women were sat down in a room in small groups. They were given counselling beforehand as to who they could call if they found the subject very stressful. Then they were asked how they would react if lesbians or gay men were serving in their unit. And they were being asked that by the armed forces who had a publicly expressed opinion that they shouldn't have them serving in the forces. And knowing full well what the repercussions might be. Precisely. So unsurprisingly, the report finds that the policy is important, but it gives examples of why. And I'm not making this up. So in the report, they identify that lesbians and gay men, if they were allowed to serve, would be the subject of violent attacks and assaults. I would smash his face in, that type of thing. So they list all of that as support for the policy. They then identify nine different types of homosexual. I've been out and gay for 30 years now, and I've, I've, I don't know who the nine different types of homosexual are. But what they're trying to do in that report is suggest that there are different levels of being out. And that because some people were saying, well, if people just live a quiet private life, what's that got to do with the forces? And they were trying to indicate that irrespective of how out you were or how flamboyant or how campaigning, you were still a problem. There was a, a member of the armed forces who was a Roman Catholic and was celibate and had always been celibate, but who came out as gay, but said he had no intention of acting on it uh, for you know, his religious reasons. And he was sacked. You can talk about situations where people were being sacked for being celibate and gay. I don't know what a gay person is supposed to do in those situations. Calling all ancient history fans, this is The Ancients, the podcast dedicated to all things ancient history. From tours of stunning archaeological sites... You will not see a fountain in a Roman fort. You might see a well or a tank, but not a fountain like this, so this is something really unique to the great depth of knowledge surrounding indigenous Australian astronomy. Everything's sort of related, everything's connected, and to understand them all is vital to continuing your culture and continuing your survival. Subscribe to The Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So in that environment, you had the, not only saying that it would be a security risk, that it would be injurious to good order and discipline, but that if gay served in the forces, they'd be beaten up. So that was the official government position in the mid to late 1990s. And just to put this into a broader perspective here, we're talking about Britain. We're talking about the three services. We're talking about the MOD, because it was only Britain and the USA at that time in the mid-1990s that were the only countries within NATO that discriminated against homosexuals in the armed forces. Isn't that right? There is some ambiguity about that because this was a subject that wasn't dealt with within quite a lot of countries. And you also have a mix of, as you come out of the 80s, at any rate, you also have a mix of countries that have national service as well. There was a fear when there was national service that saying you were gay would be a really easy way to get out of national service. But that didn't mean that lesbians and gays were welcomed in the French armed forces, but it meant that while they had service national, you couldn't just turn up and say, oh, but I am gay, and therefore not serve. So yeah, the, the, it was more complex than that. The Netherlands was interesting because I interviewed a Dutch Marine who'd served in Bosnia. And uh, and I put that, I remember putting that to the MOD, and I remember the military spokesman of the MOD in that meeting saying, yes, but that's the Dutch armed forces. They have trade unions and they don't work at the weekends. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, said in jest, but you know, nonetheless. That was the mood of it. Yeah. yeah. So, but what we argued when we were fighting the campaign, we argued again and again and again that there was one group in society that you can announce changes to and expect them to manage it. It is the armed forces. And we said, when the ban goes, and I'm sure it will, we said that it would be straightforward and business as usual, because the kind of people that want to join the armed forces are the kind of people that want to join the armed forces. And when people are in the forces... They're judged on the quality of the job that they do, how reliable they are. So it was, and that, and of course, that's what happened. The, the reality is that once the ban was lifted, 
the armed forces simply got on with it. And there are lesbian, gay and trans service members now who have served with extraordinary distinction. And the forces have had a much tougher time since lesbians and gays have served. And it doesn't seem to have been a problem. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you look as the Cold War came to an end. And if anything, the amount of wars we were involved in shot up and up and up and uh, potentially are continuing to, to this point today. Take us through a little bit of this history once you had resigned your commission. So you chose to do that to get involved more in campaigning. But when did change start to happen in the British military itself? When did you found this push to challenge the ban? Yeah, so there's a bit of a gap there. So I was sacked. I refused to resign in the end. Ah, I see. It didn't seem to me that there was any reason why I shouldn't continue my career. So I was asked repeatedly to resign and I didn't. So in the end, uh, I remember the phrase, my commission was terminated on the grounds that my intended lifestyle was incompatible with that of a serving naval officer. That was the phrase. So I went on to work in media. I became a journalist. I started writing. You you continued reporting on wars at that time as well, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Bosnia, we made a cracking documentary uh, called We Know the Best Way of Killing People about mercenaries who were serving in Yugoslavia. So I stayed in touch, you know, very much with the military, naval and military world that I left as a journalist. And although retrospectively, you know, looking back now, with benefit of hindsight, it just seems very obvious that my own experience and, and, and loss of career led to the campaign. Actually, there's a kind of four or five year interlude. And it felt at the time like it was something different. It's just nobody at the time I was sacked suggested that I had a legal case. That wasn't something that was discussed or an option. And yet, subsequently, as I met other people who'd left the armed forces, as I joined the group Rank Outsiders, which Robert Ely and Elaine Chambers had established, who'd given evidence to a House of Commons Select Committee uh, a couple of years earlier, they'd set up this support group for lesbians and gay men in the forces. And that had a helpline. And I joined them on the helpline. Those were Tuesday evenings between seven and nine. And people who were terrified that they had been exposed or were going to be exposed would you know, leave their bases, drive to phone boxes in distant parts of the country because they were determined that all the phone boxes around the bases would be listened to. And they would ring that helpline to ask what they would do, particularly if they thought that someone had reported them or they were under investigation. So, so that, that helpline existed. It was an amazing support group. And I wanted that group to start the campaign to change the law The group initially was very resistant to that because they were hoping that the Ministry of Defence would recognise them and allow them to offer support, pastoral services to people who were being sacked. Because at the time, the MOD was refusing to tell anyone, give anyone any support or help when they were being sacked. So they were hoping that they could position themselves in that way and felt that if they were seen as a campaigning organisation on the ban, that the MOD would close that door. So that wasn't an option. Stonewall, of course, at the time, which had grown out of the Section 28 campaigning of the late 80s, was not wholly, but largely a group of the left. The deputy director at the time had been a protester at Greenham Common. The director herself had been a very active part of left movements in the 70s. So is is that a way of saying uh, that, that they may have been you know, not to go as far as anti-military, but most definitely not on the side of those who were in the military. So there was a bit of a, a disconnect here between Stonewall being able to support those who were trying to take on the gay ban and also those who had been in the military, which they were so vehemently against. I mean, it's not a delicate way of saying it. I mean, actually, what you said is true. You know, as as those early campaigns started, I mean, I had a really difficult job to do because I wasn't just trying to 
argue that the ban was wrong and should be lifted. I was also trying to get what was a largely anti-military establishment in, in gay campaigning to believe that it was a campaign they should fight too. And there was quite a lot of resistance to that. When I wrote We Can't Even March Straight, which was you know an attempt at a humorous title, but you know, that came out in 1995. Very shortly afterwards, Peter Tatchell, for whom I have the utmost respect, he's a good friend, but he published a, a follow-up book called We Don't Even Want to March Straight or We Don't Want to March Straight, which was a, a, a response to the idea that if you had been through what was thought of as, as, as gay liberation, that you would naturally and instinctively not be supportive of military, of the military. And a lot of the women's groups who were you know, vital to many of the, the gay rights campaigns of the, those early years, but a lot of them came out of a history of campaigning on issues from the left. And I'm not for a moment saying that the forces issues are from the right, but they were perceived as establishment and supportive of the establishment. And there was a lot of questioning as to whether or not the right thing for lesbians and gay men to want to do once they were out was support the estate and support the establishment. And it took time. Stonewall didn't support the campaign initially. They, they made space for me to see if I could get enough cases together and get lawyers together. But the, those very first months was... The Armed Forces Legal Challenge Group had the warm support, but not the formal or written support of either the Armed Forces Group or Stonewall. That came later. We had to show that we had a case, and that you know. And, and to some, I think it was a case of was it winnable, but to others, it was they were still working their way through the the moral case for lesbians and gays serving in the forces. It was complex. So the Armed Forces Legal Challenge Group was the group that you set up. How many of you were there to, to start with to take on this monumental task? Well, funnily enough, I was thinking about it, I just dug out the minutes of the first meeting here. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was the 28th of September 1994. So we met at Stonewall. Stonewall gave us the office space to, to hold the meeting, but it wasn't their meeting. And what I was trying to do was to get find out, firstly, how many cases there were, some people who had cases by that stage were talking to lawyers, but those lawyers weren't talking to each other. So that was the first time in a room we got all of the, a lot of the cases who were interested. You know, I've actually got here, I mean, I went for GDPR reasons show it, although I suspect all these phone numbers have gone now. But, you know, I've got here the list of everyone who came to that first meeting. We passed the book around and they signed it. Several of those first cases, Duncan Lustig Breen, for example, was at that meeting, who became the highest profile of the four cases that went to court. So, And then there are some significant lawyer names here as well. So that was the first time everyone came together. And I think as a consequence of that, some of the people who lost their jobs realised that there was someone who would listen. And the lawyers realised that there was actually real interest in trying to bring this as a proper case. So it grew out of that and it, it brought everyone together and became a bit more of a network, I suppose. And then we had to go through this really difficult thing. Once Stonewall then agreed to fund a case, we had to choose the cases. I still can have nightmares about that because we had to choose who had a good case and who had a bad case. What made a good case, Ed, in, in these situations? I mean, well, you know, I know there are still people to this day who kind of feel that we, we snubbed them, and I, I suppose we did. I've talked about this before, but when you're campaigning like this, there is a kind of blind arrogance that you have to adopt that you're doing the right thing and just keep plowing ahead. And, and of course, by doing that, you do knock some people off the road as you go. As you get older and wiser and look back, you think, God, we were pretty beastly to some people. And, and I think that that's true. So we were looking for 
we needed to have obviously both men and women. And although we were very strongly of the view that the ban itself caused people to get themselves into terrible messes and get themselves blackmailed or into all kinds of problems, we didn't want those cases as the front and centre. We wanted the four cases that you could proudly hand over to any national newspaper to interview, that you could photograph and who had records that even the Daily Mail would find it a challenge at that time to not. And that's a pretty brutal exercise. And I'm sure other campaigns have had the same issue on other human rights campaigns. But we had to choose four cases who became the military four. And everybody else's cases were effectively tied to or stayed or whatever, waiting for the outcome of, of those four. So they became the test cases. And some people would very much like to have been one of those test cases, but you could only bring so many cases. So just, just to help us understand, if... There was a case where someone had found themselves to be blackmailed, for instance. This would almost be playing into the MOD's official narrative of that these are liabilities within the military. And so it makes it a very different test case. And especially if, you know, certain newspapers to get hold of it, you can just see the headlines now, can't you? Yeah, I mean, we had to be incredibly sensitive around the stories that we were telling because the way that you win these sort of campaigns is by bringing people in to share the human interest in them. And it was very tough on those four people because everyone wanted to know all about their lives and, and not all of them enjoyed that by any stretch of the imagination. It was a really tough time. They were absolutely front and centre in the public eye. They were on the front page of newspapers. You know, one of the things that I find really interesting about doing this now you know, on, online is that because we fought this battle in the 1990s, it's not really online. There's bits of it. You find it here and there. But this was fought in print and on radio and television. And so the history's lost, really, a lot of it. It needs somehow reassembling because, you know, what you see online misses out huge chunks of it. And more importantly, it misses out the people. And that's true of a lot of these huge campaigns of the 80s and 90s that changed Britain. There were individuals who put themselves at huge personal risk, not necessarily risk in the physical sense, but, you know, their whole lives were open to inspection when they brought these campaigns. And they're gone now. There are names that if you look them up on the big establishment gay organisation websites, the names don't, they're kind of just gone because the, we did all this pre-internet. So for those four, they came down to London. Whenever we appeared somewhere, there were a 100 journalists. There were TV cameras everywhere. The day the story broke about the book and, and the campaign, I was in Manchester and I went from one studio to another. I got Well, I started off doing interviews on the radio at a friend's house. And then I got a taxi into Manchester. I went to the BBC studios in, in Manchester, where I did the BBC one o'clock news on television and then the World at One on Radio 4, then lots of local radio stuff, then all the phone-in shows on local, BBC Local Radio wanted me. Then, of course, commercial and independent radio still at that point had news programmes that wanted me. So I called friends, Simon Ingram, who'd lost his job in the RAF, who lived and worked in Manchester, and said, Simon, please, can you come as well? I can't do all this. By that stage, that afternoon, there's a photograph of Simon and I walking down the canal in Manchester in the Chicago Sun-Times. The world's media was interested in what was happening about gays in the military. And that afternoon, I then got asked if I would be on Newsnight. Well, I'm in Manchester. So I said, well, you have to fly me to London. And then I thought, well, hang on, going back to this thing that I wanted us to look and feel like people you'd want in the forces. And I'm wearing a T-shirt and jeans. So, you know, I, I said, well, you've got to, you know, I'll, I'll need a suit and here are my sizes. So I got flown down, August 94, I got flown down to London 
whisked off to a television centre by the BBC, nicely dressed in a suit, sat in, and only at that point in the studio on Newsnight, I discover that I'm kind of debating the ban with John Wilkinson, who was the chair of the Defence Select Committee at the time, Conservative MP. So that was one hell of a day. And to put it in a historical context, yeah, Don't Ask, Don't Tell had just been introduced in the US. So in the United States, when Clinton was standing for his first term of office during his campaign, he and Hillary Clinton had courted the gay community in the US and they had said that they would lift the ban. Now, the military establishment was very opposed to that and it was one of the things that Clinton failed to do in those first couple of years in office. So there was an expectation the ban would be lifted. When he won, quite a lot of US servicemen had come out the expectation that it was now legal. And then this very strange compromise known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell was introduced as a compromise position. But it meant that if you were out, you were still sacked. And several people who came out because of that promise lost their jobs in the US military. So at the time, one of the biggest stories about Clinton in his early days in office was what was happening about gays in the military, which I think people forget. And so it was in that context that it now becoming a political campaign in the UK became of huge political interest and news interest around the world because it looked like the UK was about to follow what had gone on in the US. And what was the Blair's government's approach to this? So so Clinton is broadly supportive, has, has campaigned on this, or is, is unable to still enact it. What's Blair's view here? So when we started campaigning, we still had the major government. Now, the major government had made some interesting steps in the right direction on gay rights. They didn't do what people wanted, but they allowed a vote on the age of consent, for example, in 94. Everyone's anticipation was, or hope was, that it would be equalised, because at that time, to be gay, you needed to be 21, or a male homosexual age of consent was 21. So anyone under 21 was breaking the law. So there was a vote on that. Everyone's expectation was that equality would win. It didn't, but it was reduced to 18. So that's what I mean by a step in that direction. Major also lifted the ban on gays in the you know, foreign office, in security positions, in the intelligence services, in the higher ranks of the civil service. So there were things that had started changing, not, not enough, and it was step by step. During that period, the party that had been arguing that things should go further was, of course, the Labour Party. And, and Blair had been shadow home secretary before he was leader. And so this was very much his portfolio. So both Blair and the Shadow Defence Secretary, John Reid, had been very clear with us that it was their policy that they would lift the ban when they came, if they came in. And as, of course, as we got close to the election in 97, it became very obvious that the Labour was going to win. So there was a moment when we thought, well, we're going to win now. The ban is going to be lifted. And actually not dissimilar to what happened with Clinton. Actually, they came into office and far from it. They did not lift the ban. And the case continued to work its way to the European Court of Human Rights. And it was only after the government lost its case in the European Court of Human Rights that the government then lifted the ban. Those types of freedoms are very easy to promise on political you know, campaign uh, rallies, but they're not easy to deliver in reality. And it took a fight. And I have to say that kind of knocked me a little bit. I was kind of 97. I kind of take a step back a bit from the, from the front of the campaign at that point, because it feels like really, well, the, all we can do now is wait for the court. We've already won the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail is now running articles saying these pilots are being sacked. What a waste of money. So we've won that argument. If the mainstream right-wing press are now of the view that sacking lesbian and gay servicemen who haven't done anything wrong is a ridiculous waste of money, then we've won that 
argument. We've got ex-forces people in the House of Lords who are saying that it's time that it went. And we had a government, new government, that had said in opposition that it would lift the ban, and it hasn't. That's where I kind of thought, well, all we have now is to wait for the court, which is what happened. Yes, January 2000, that over two decades ago. I won't ask you how that makes you feel, Ed, but <laughs> <laughs> take us through that day. What do you remember about the day the ban was lifted? There's a couple of sort of little stories of what happened. The day itself, not hugely, but the day the court case was won, I kicked myself because I didn't go to Strasbourg to hear the ruling when it had come out. And I, that was a mistake. I, I regret that. I should have done. So I had missed that moment in the court, although I'd been to all the court cases in the UK as it had worked its way there. So I was feeling a little sort of semi-detached from it by that point, probably a little bruised by it, I suspect. But there was a, a Navy coxswain from one of our nuclear submarines who had been sacked shortly before the ban was lifted. And within days, he was asked back. And that, to me, was so emblematic of the argument that we'd made again and again and again, which was that people should be measured by what they do and, and, and what they deliver. And clearly, the Ministry of Defence and the forces believed that too, if that crucial job was one that they were desperate to get him back to do. And there were a few other people who went back. For me, it was too long. I mean, I did think about it, but it, it had been too long and I'd, I'd, I'd made another career, so I didn't. But two or three years after that, the Royal Navy won an award for being a fabulous LGBT employer. And it was only about three years later. And there was a, a Stonewall Awards thing, so champagne London loveys all clinking glasses type event. At the, it was at the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum in London. And I went along as a guest of a friend. And, and I was with a group of people who didn't have any idea of my history of campaigning on the subject. I was just Ed. So I arrived for the free champagne. I didn't know that one of the awards was about to be given to and collected by the Second Sea Lord. So I sat in this huge room at the V&A with hundreds of people and watch the second sea law go on stage to receive an award. And I burst rather ludicrously into tears. People around me had no idea why. I think that was one of the first moments where I, I felt that, that the natural pain, the embarrassment, the feeling that you failed to do something, all the stuff that anyone who's been kicked out of a job that they love feels, kind of felt like a moment of release for me. It was very difficult to tell people why I'd left the Navy for a long time. And that changed it. And this year, well, just gone in November, for the first time, LGBT veterans were invited to march formally at the Cenotaph Parade by the Royal British Legion. And I joined that group on that march. And I think that the, the relationship between LGBT veterans and the serving community was sort of one of the last hurdles because people feel uncomfortable and embarrassed on both sides, I think, about what happened. So that was a huge barrier to come down. Ministers have apologised publicly and privately. That makes a huge difference. And the Cabinet Office is just about to start a, a process of working out how it can compensate people for the very real losses that they had. Simon that I mentioned earlier, he had a house up near RAF Kinloss, which he had to sell in the middle of a financial crisis and lose a bucket load of money, which the bank you know, chased him for until he paid. People lost pensions. And people who had good careers, because they had criminal records in some cases, never managed to get a proper job again. 
And so when people talk about compensation, we're not talking about people being given wild American sums of money for because the government was naughty. We're talking about people who have suffered real losses as a consequence of an illegal ban. Well, and it sounds like there's most certainly still work to be done to make sure that people are really recompensed for those historical cases of of discrimination. Tell us, where can people read more about this topic? So there's a fantastic new book, which has sparked, in fact, a a whole new charity uh, called Fighting with Pride. So over the years, there have been different organisations that have come and gone. I've been part of some of them myself, founded one. But over the years, they've, they've, they've come and gone. There is now a, a formal charity. It works very closely with the MOD. It works very closely with all veterans organisations. It's called Fighting with Pride. And it came out of the publication of a book, which is a series of stories of people from the past and people who are serving with great distinction today as as our LGBT service people. So it's a great book. It's called Fighting with Pride. It's available on Amazon, all good bookshops. And uh, you can skip the first chapter because that's me. (laughs) Well, Ed, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe so you can access our original cutting-edge military histories each week, twice a week, every week. And if you think there's a history we need to cover or you want to share your own family histories, then email us directly on warfare at historyhit.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.